The following podcast contains audio extracted from videos on the Mythology Explained YouTube channel. Please note that there are two narrators for this podcast, myself, Silas, and Zach. Please enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to Mythology Explained. In today's episode, we're going to take another dive into the Lord of the Rings universe, specifically into the life of Melkor, whose name means he who arises in might the incarnation of evil and nemesis of all that is green and good in the Tolkien Legendarium. The Balrog served him, he created all the dragons of the world, he created or corrupted every other evil creature, either directly or indirectly, and he was more powerful than any of the other greater spirits that came to Ea, the world. We're going to start things off with some general introductory info, and then we're going to do an overview of his whole life. Let's get into it. Long before the events that take place in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Sauron, the main antagonist of the series, wasn't his own master. Rather, he was a servant of Melkor, the true Dark Lord. Melkor was, essentially, the incarnation of evil. In power, he was second only to Eru, the One, the only god in the monotheistic structure that underpins the Lord of the Rings mythos. Melkor was very similar to Lucifer, both as being part of an angelic race, and as, driven by lust and hubris, falling from grace and plunging into shadow. When he first came to Earth, his appearance was colossal and elemental, as tall as a mountain, as fell as a black cloud storm laced with lightning, with ice, fire, and shadow about him. Later, after his first imprisonment, he assumed a fair form, one that helped convey the pretense of reform he maintained to belie his true thoughts and intentions. And later, after much of his personal power was dispersed, infused into his wicked works, such as corrupting the land, building fortresses and breeding armies, his individual potency was diminished. In this state, he appeared as a giant man plated in black armor, a sable bulwark of shield on one arm, Grond, the hammer of the underworld, wielded in the other. Though Melkor was not technically a god, once he descended to Earth from the timeless halls, the power he possessed over life and land was certainly godworthy when compared to the deities that populated the pagan pantheons of bygone polytheistic religions, like those of the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Greeks. The only way to tell Morgoth's long and wicked story is by winding the clocks back to a time that precedes creation itself. In the very beginning, there was only Eru, the One. In Elvish, his name was Iluvatar. He was self-created and, for a time, was the only thing that existed in the void. Omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, in power and province, he was similar to the gods of monotheistic religions. His first creations were the Ainur, an angelic race. They were manifestations of his thought, and using the flame imperishable, itself an aspect of Eru, he imbued them with eternal life. The Ainur dwelt in the Timeless Halls, a place Eru created for them. Among the many gifts Eru bestowed on the Ainur was a great voice so that each of them could sing for him, first individually, then in concert as a choir would. The music made by the Ainur created a globe of light in the darkness, a vision of Ea, the world, later called Arda, the Earth, by the Elves, that was to come, and Eru, again using the flame imperishable, made real the vision the voices of the Ainur had coalesced into. Here, there was a split in the Ainur. Some remained in the timeless halls, others went to Ea, which brought about a change of form. While in the timeless halls, 
The Ainur existed as beings of pure spirit, but those that left and came to Ea took physical form upon their arrival. Melkor was one of the Ainur, and he began his descent into darkness in the depths of the primordial past. Alone, he traveled to remote, unexplored places in the void, vainly searching for the flame imperishable so that he could bring life to creations of his own. And when Eru bade the Ainur to sing, Melkor's voice created discord and clashed with the others. He wished to increase the importance of his contribution, and in the confusion, many of the other Ainur attuned their voices to his. A clash of wills and music ensued between Melkor and Eru, until Melkor's voice was utterly subsumed into a yet greater work. Thus, it was shown that everything was ultimately of Eru, and that no matter how strongly Melkor rebelled, all he could do was inadvertently contribute towards making Eru's vision all the more beautiful. This revelation filled Melkor with shame, and a secret anger kindled and then seethed inside of him. In the vision the Ainur sang into existence was the history of Ea, how the events of the ages would unfold within the vastness of time. So much of what the future held in store was already known to the Ainur. Among what they saw was the coming of the children of Eru, elves and men. Early on, Melkor's secret evil was even partially hidden from himself. He told himself that he went to Ea to order the world and prepare it for the children of Eru, but this was just a fabricated veneer that veiled a deeper, sinister truth. He was jealous of the gifts elves and men were to be bestowed with, and what's more, lofty designs hid in the recesses of his mind. He wished to be master of life and land, to have subjects, to be called lord, and to dominate the wills of all those who drew breath. Melkor's impotence in respect to his ability to deviate from the greater beauty Eru spoke of is demonstrated in the dynamism of water. From Melkor came fire and frost, ostensibly spoiling the perfection of the oceans that would have existed in his absence. But through the phenomena driven by heat and cold came ice and mist and clouds and rain, creating through conflict a world more beautiful than what would have otherwise existed. Of the Ainur that came to Ea, a hierarchy developed, stratified into two tiers. The greatest of their number became known as the Valar. Originally, there were fifteen of them, but Melkor was stricken from their order once the evil hidden inside of him revealed itself. The lesser Ainur that came to Ea, though still extremely powerful, entered into the service of the Valar and were known as the Maiar. Of the Valar, there were eight that stood above the rest. These were known as the Aratar. Other names for them were the Holy Ones of Arda and the Eight. Their number included Nienna, the Weeper, Oromi, Lord of the Forest, Mandos, Keeper of the Dead and Pronouncer of the Dooms Decreed by Aru, Ole, the Craftsman, Ulmo, Lord of the Waters, Yavanna, the Fertility and Bounty of the Earth, Varda, the Architect of the Heavens, weaving the infinitely intricate tapestry of stars that whirled overhead, and lastly we have Manwe, the Wind King. Once, Melkor also numbered among the Aratar, but this order he was also expelled from. And unlike the other Valar, each of whom was the embodiment of one of the aspects of the world, Melkor shared in all their gifts, and as such, he was much more powerful than any of them. When the Ainur first arrived, they were dismayed, for what was shown in the vision their music created didn't exist. What was shown was what would exist after their arrival and subsequent labors. But since the moment of their arrival preceded any works they would do, the world they first stepped foot on was a vast, unworked expanse of desolate wastes. 
everything blanketed in darkness, not unlike a lump of clay before a pair of skilled hands go to work on it. In power and in their contributions to creating the world, three stood above the rest, Manwe, Ulmo, and Ole. Together, their powers included the three chief aspects of the world, wind, water, and earth, and tirelessly they worked, shaping the face of the world as a painter brushes canvas or a sculptor carves stone, producing a myriad of beautiful works. Here is where Melkor truly crystallized into the evil enemy and bane of everything green and good. The Valar became the powers of the earth incarnate, and Melkor, seeing this, became jealous of their majestic forms and so emulated them. But because of his mood, the form he took was great and terrible. Here's a description of it from the Silmarillion. He descended upon Arda in power and majesty greater than any of the other Valar. As a mountain that wades in the sea and has its head above the clouds and is clad in ice and crowned with smoke and fire. And the light of the eyes of Melkor was like a flame that withers with heat and pierces with deadly cold. In this terrible form, Melkor took to destroying everything the other Valar created, and so began the first war that raged between them. He leveled mountains, filled valleys and boiled oceans. Every time a Valar finished a work on the world's surface, Melkor was quick to strike it down, as was his wont, and everywhere he strode became unmade and corrupted. Despite his relentless efforts to counter the Valar at every turn, slowly, as time passed, the world was shaped. None of the Valar's designs were brought to fruition, but what came of this cataclysmic conflict was beautiful nonetheless. Melkor pressed the Valar, and their struggle was ceaseless. But then, far off in the timeless halls, a spirit of great strength and vigor heard that battle was being fought in the new world. Tulkas, who would become one of the Valar, came to Arda. Though not the most powerful of his kind, he was the strongest, and from the moment he arrived, he pursued Melkor, who fled before him and went so far as to flee Arda entirely, fleeing deep into the void where he brooded and bided his time, his hatred growing all the while, and for a long age there was peace. In Melkor's absence, the world flourished. All the Valar could work in peace, and the land was transformed into an Eden. The crowning achievement was the creation of the two lamps. Set atop pillars that towered over any mountain, each lamp shone high up in the sky. They both resided on Middle-earth, the world's eastern continent. With one in the north and one in the south, they bathed all the land in blessed, blissful light. It was now that Melkor deemed the time ripe to make his return. From the void, he made a furtive approach. He slipped back into Middle-earth and then settled on Arda without any of the Valar taking notice. In the far north, he delved and tunneled so extensively that it was as if he had created his own subterranean realm. His work there was called Utumno, and it served as his seat of power for long ages to come. Melkor's return was like the beginning of a sickness upon the land, and as that sickness spread, the Valar eventually perceived that their enemy of old had returned. Rather than wait to be discovered, Melkor took the initiative and launched an attack on the two lamps. He pulled both of them down, and once they crashed to the ground, the light within them spilled out and was like an ocean of fire rolling over the land. Melkor made a hasty retreat back to his stronghold of Utumno, which he judged to be safe at that time, for the Valar were busy extricating the world from disaster, salvaging whatever works they could, unable to assail their foe with their full might. The home of the Valar was consumed by the destruction wreaked when the two lamps were pulled down on Middle-earth. 
so they uprooted and migrated to Amman, the continent to the east. There, they began anew and created a new home for themselves. Melkor used this time to fortify and expand his forces. He built Angband, a second fortress as a buffer and first line of defense should the Valar ever return to wage war on him. Here, he installed Sauron, his most powerful servant. Many of the Maiar were seduced by Melkor's power, and when they came into his service, their spirits became corrupted, and they became demons of fire and shadow. In the High Elven Tongue, these formidable foes were known as the Vlaurokar, but in Middle-earth, they were called Balrogs, demons of might. The greatest of them was Gothmog, their chieftain. But not all of the Maiar corrupted into Melkor's service became Balrogs. Such was the case with Sauron, who, of all of Melkor's servants, was the greatest general. He was cruel and cunning and could change his form at need, appearing fair when manipulation and deceit were needed, or fearsome when battle demanded it. Melkor was spared from the wrath of the Valar because the Valar were reluctant to unleash their might against him. The destruction of the two lamps saw an ocean of fire wash over the land, so they didn't want to see a catastrophe of that magnitude repeated. Consequently, they maintained virtually no presence on Middle-earth, leaving it to darkness, focusing instead on building and perfecting the new home they established on Amman. But from their inaction and lack of vigilance, much evil would come. The elves eventually awoke on Middle-earth, so Melkor discovered them before any of the Valar, he captured many of them, and using his dark arts, he tortured them until they were broken, then remade them as perversions of their original forms. This is how the first orcs were created. The Valar immediately launched a full-scale attack against Melkor as soon as they realized that the elves had awoken and that Melkor was capturing them for his nefarious purposes. This was known as the War of the Powers. Melkor's armies were shattered and scattered, and he was forced to retreat and entrench himself in Utumno. But this time, his fortress wouldn't be his salvation. The Valar besieged him, broke his gates, and captured him. They bound him with Anganor, an unbreakable chain, and they cast him into the halls of Mandos. After being imprisoned for three ages, Melkor was brought before Manwe. He feigned remorse and pretended to have changed, and Manwe, a benevolent figure unable to comprehend hatred, took Melkor at his word. For a time, Melkor kept up the pretense of reform, but this was just an act to disarm his former captors, allowing cunning and cruelty, weapons of a more insidious nature, to work their subtle poison. Because the arrival of the elves had been the impetus for his imprisonment, he loathed them most of all. He resolved to corrupt them and to extinguish the splendor of Arda. Initially, he did this by turning the Noldor, one of the most important clans of elves, against the Valar, and against itself, putting brother against brother. Melkor's sinister efforts were found out, so he fled south, where he entered into an unholy alliance with Ungoliant, a giant spider with an insatiable appetite. They attacked the two trees, Laurelin, the golden tree, and Telperion, the silver tree. To understand the significance of this, we'll have to spend a minute going over exactly what the two trees were. After the two lamps were pulled down and the Valar migrated to Amman, the continent to the west of Middle-earth, Middle-earth was abandoned to the dominion of Melkor, the Valar founded Valinor, their new realm. Yavanna, the incarnation of the power that caused plants to grow, produced two trees of singular majesty and radiance. 
Each tree emitted light, and together they illuminated the land, much as the two lamps did when they still towered over Middle-earth. Melkor, with his great black spear, impaled each tree multiple times, so that each one had several wounds from which luminous sap poured out. Ungoliant then came forth and drank all the sap, draining both trees and poisoning them. Neither survived long afterwards. As it was when the two lamps were destroyed, the world was once again plunged into darkness. But this was only temporary, before each tree bore one final fruit, and Ole, the divine craftsman, created a vessel for each. And thus, they were set into the sky as the sun and the moon, bringing light to the land once more. Rubbing salt in the wound, Melkor then stole the Silmarils before making his escape. And here, we should spend a little time discussing what the Silmarils were. Wrought by Feanor, of all the elves, the greatest craftsmen, the Silmarils were three jewels of unsurpassed beauty and brilliance. In them was captured some of the light of the two great trees. Feanor, after the two trees were destroyed, was summoned to the Ring of Doom, which was where the Valar assembled to hold council. The Valar implored him to hand over the Silmarils so that they could use them to revive the trees, but Feanor rebuffed them. This conversation proved irrelevant, for word came to them of Melkor killing Feanor's father, stealing the Silmarils, and fleeing north. Upon learning of this, Feanor cursed Melkor, branding him Morgoth, black foe of the world. With his father dead, Feanor became king. He rallied the Noldor, galvanizing them into action. Their hearts set afire by Feanor's impassioned speech, the Noldor mobilized and began their pursuit of Morgoth. But when they reached the coast, they realized they had no ships. To overcome this obstacle, they beseeched a coastal clan of elves to give or lend them their ships. But when they would not oblige, Feanor and his followers attacked, killed many, and took the ships by force. This marked the very first kinslaying, an unforgivable sin in the eyes of the Valar. Seemingly in response to their wrongdoing, a great storm arose, and its gales and wrathful waves destroyed many of the captured boats. Then, Mandos, the Doomcaller and one of the Valar, appeared before the Noldor and proclaimed their fate. Essentially, he explained that their crusade against Morgoth would be fruitless, and that for the egregious transgression of kinslaying, none of the Valar would offer them succor in the wars to come. Following this grim foretelling, the mighty host of the Noldor was sundered. Some returned to Valinor and begged forgiveness. Feanor and those most loyal to him stole the ships, sailed to Middle-earth, and then burned them, and the largest faction, led by Fingolfin, Feanor's half-brother, traversed Helcoraxi, the icy waste in the far north that connected Amman and Middle-earth. And so began the interminable conflict between the Elves and Morgoth that spanned the entirety of the First Age. In all, the War of the Great Jewels, as it was called, lasted about 590 years. Near the end of the First Age, a half-elf, half-man named Erendil, against all odds, made the journey by boat from Middle-earth to Amman. Thus, being half-man, he was the first mortal to set foot upon the holy continent on which the Valar dwelt. He implored the Valar, for the sake of both elves and men, to join the war against Morgoth and help to put an end to his evil. The Valar were moved by his plea, particularly by the selflessness of it, as it was for the good of all men and elves, not for himself. The Valar joined the war, 
and Morgoth, once and for all, was defeated, cast into the timeless void. Now, what we're going to do is circle back to the time Morgoth and Ungoliant killed the two trees, plundered Fino's vault, stealing the Silmarils and many other lesser glowing jewels, and fled north back to Middle-earth, this time looking at events insofar as they revolved around Morgoth. By consuming the luminous sap of the two trees, Ungoliant grew in both size and terror, and became a dark behemoth that even Morgoth became fearful of. Still ravenous, Ungoliant demanded that Morgoth hand over the jewels he had stolen. He tried to satisfy her by handing over some of the lesser jewels, but she could not be appeased and demanded that the Silmarils be handed over as well. Morgoth refused, so Ungoliant attacked, weaving her dark webs about him. Morgoth screamed, and his Balrogs, which were hibernating nearby underneath the ruins of Angband, heard and rushed towards their beleaguered master. They swarmed in with their fiery whips and chased Ungoliant away. Later, Morgoth set the three Silmarils into his iron crown. News of the Noldor elves coming to Middle-earth reached Morgoth's ears. He sent a great army of orcs against them. Their numbers were so great that when they approached they covered the land like a swarm of insects on a carcass. But despite this, they were no match for the Noldor, who cut through them like a scythe through wheat. After subsequent attacks, it became apparent to Morgoth that orcs were nothing but fodder for gleaming elvish blades. He began capturing elves, breaking them, and releasing them as spies that kept him apprised of his enemy's doings. And he began creating more formidable servants. He created the dragons, unsurpassed in size, unassailable in their strength, an enemy against which even the elves were overmatched. Though Morgoth was at one time besieged, and though he suffered setbacks, Ultimately, after centuries of war, the elven forces dwindled, and their power to resist him diminished. After many wars and the destruction of many great elven cities, Gondolin, the last of the great Noldoran kingdoms of Middle-earth, finally fell. After this was when Irindil sailed to Oman to supplicate the Valar, who finally relented on their vow not to support the elves of Middle-earth against Morgoth in any way. Morgoth, incapable of understanding compassion, didn't anticipate the Valar setting their might against him once again. He emptied every pit and tunnel delved beneath Angband so that every sort of horror emerged, and they were so numerous that the fighting covered all of Beleriand, the western part of Middle-earth destroyed by this war and consumed by the sea. The orcs were slaughtered in numbers beyond count, the Balrogs were defeated, the few survivors scattered and driven into the deep places of the world. But Morgoth still had one final move. He sent forth all the dragons that he had bred in the dank dark of his pits, and their attack was so sudden and so devastating that even the Valar, for a time, were pushed back and put on the defensive. But eventually, even the onslaught of these winged worms fell to the irresistible wrath of the Valar. Once again, Morgoth was bound by Anganor, the great chain wrought for just this purpose. His crown was beaten into a collar and clamped around his neck. And the two Silmarils he still possessed, two because one was stolen centuries past by Beren and Luthien, were prized from his crown and recovered, though only for a short while, for one would be taken by the sea, the other by the depths of the earth. This time, Morgoth was cast into the timeless void. And that's it for this video. If you enjoy the content, please like the video and subscribe to the channel.